GM Jenko, how are you, my man? I'm bringing you up, Jenko, slowly. GM, GM. Sandman, welcome. Looking forward to this conversation. I'm bringing up Jenko so we can get the show rolling, and then I'm excited to do a deep dive into what you're doing, my man. I'm very, very grateful that you joined us today. I uh, appreciate it, and uh, yeah, definitely um, looking forward to seeing what we can talk about. <laughs> Beautiful. Jenko, I got you up as co-host. What's up, Carl? How are you? Excellent. How What's are you? going on? I'm good. I'm good. Interesting time in the space right now. There's a lot of debates going on, a lot of active debates about what's happening with farming of NFTs and royalties. And, you know, it makes me think for a second, are we looking at a place here where non-fungible tokens have become fungible? Because it seems to me that rarity and traits and all these other things that we used to think were so important about NFTs aren't doing much right now to move floors. And it seems to be that NFTs are a vehicle for farming right now. And that that's raising an interesting debate in the space. Yeah. I mean, traits didn't move floors. The floors were always the fungible part of this world. But I think with the mechanics offered by different marketplaces, they've become more front and center. And then once you... Once you account for liquidity of, you know, desired traits in these PFP collections, I mean, a lot of people don't realize, but like you can't sell them. You can have a 3D glasses, whatever, or a alpha, whatever wolf, but like you can't, they, they, the floor may be high, but like they don't trade very often. So these things are good and bad. Um, but really bringing, like you said, the attention to the floor and really making everything pretty fungible. Um, I don't know where it lands. There's unique legal issues that have been brought up by some of the smart folks we talked to. And it looks like there's a lot to unfold, uh, unpack as this unfolds. Yeah. And it makes me wonder now, is everything pretty much a floor ape until we get through this whirlwind of blur farming and essentially uh, a select group of wallets kind of running the floors of projects, but not moving the floor price, but just basically trading on the incentive of getting another airdrop from blur. That's going to have to end. Well, not really. OSF made a good point. And it's like, that's where this would end if blur keeps mooning but the second that the rewards become don't outweigh the risks the market will change its actions so i don't know if it's like if if we get to that point but this is like where we're all going but it might run out of steam before we get there but and then another one may jump in as franklin said and like give its rewards but it you don't want a market based solely on the incentives to participate outside of the actual asset that's being traded. I can't see that as being fundamentally strong. Well, I think yeah. we're also going to move into Jungle. on-chain royalties in, in a lot of ways. And, uh, you know, new, to- new token uh, standards and stuff that uh, move away from the ERC-721. And uh, artists As Ira instance. joins us. Yeah. So Ira, Ira's <laughs> no coincidence there. Yeah, yeah. Right. 
but go ahead. Yeah, so, you know, enforcing on-chain royalties and shifting the marketplace from from the flurry of PFP projects that, you know, so many of them end up rugging in the end and focusing on the art and the individual creators as well as projects that are really uh, focused on long-term strategy and brand. So well, that's... I think... Go, that's that's a good point. I want to hone in on one thing you said, Joe, and dive right into this, maybe the middle of the conversation, then we can go back to the beginning later. Um, is it one market? It's not the market when you're talking about PFPs and cartoons and comic books and games and memes and then art. Like, I know there's one marketplace, but can we get to a point where the technology is used in distinct markets and there isn't such crossover because some of the themes and trends and momentum that die out in PFPs kind of like put a stain on some of the art. So what do you explore that when you said the marketplace get away from one and to the other, can well, we do that? Well, I think, you know, we have a lot of aggregated platforms that, that, like import all kinds of different contracts and so forth. But um, it's also getting these platforms to recognize that not everything is just art or digital art and, and really curating a sort of tagging system so that we can, you know, sort of organize what what is on the platform so people can search for what they're really looking for. You know, OpenSea, uh, you can't tag your collections with anything other than a few different descriptive things. So it's like, or make a full description of what you're doing, whether it be conceptual art, whether it be, you know, they don't have any tags for sand art or sand painting, you know, it's like being able to create those sorts of things. And, um, you know, other platforms have that option, but, um, you know, it's like when these, you know, two competitive aggregated platforms, uh, I don't know if even Blur even has one of one artist on it. I, I think it's just mostly collections, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I really think they're, they're 10 to the 10K collection. Haven't played in that, you know, playground much because it, it's really, you know, kind of a mess to look at. Uh, I, I'm not a trader looking at a Bloomberg terminal, but um, uh, it's it's obviously not focused on art. And we have worlds colliding where we have artists uh, one of one artists that came into the space with the promise of royalties, which historically has never been a thing uh, in the art world, very hard to achieve uh, only by written contracts and and uh, very hard to enforce and very hard to uh, really um, uh, get that relationship with a collector because it's not a standardized thing. Um, I've been, you know, registering my digital COAs on Verisart since 2017 and sort of playing with a paper contract of the artist resale rights uh, contract that Rauschenberg and others have used over the years. But um, it's it, when you approach a collector about some type of royalty, they're like, what? You know, it's, it's just so foreign because we have this first sale doctrine in the United States and uh, you have uh, droit de suit in Europe, which, kind of normalizes the process for people in Europe, but it's also kind of like we, we are a global society now and we need international standards to come forth and make these on-chain royalties 
Uh, I've been digging into what Ira's doing a little bit and, uh, you know, other platforms and wrote a thread that I recently retweeted about the, the platform wars and royalties, put it into historical context. But also, you know, I've been a lifelong artist and created ephemeral artworks um, that are, you know, disassembled or swept away at the end of the day or end of the exhibit. And I have documents. And then I also have physical paintings where, uh, you know, royalties would be super important uh, because the majority of my work is no longer in existence. You know, only through documents and so forth is it ever presented. Um, so, uh, you know, that sort of royalty of a physical asset is, is uh, very important to me. And I think a lot of artists uh, just... You know, we have enough of a reach and these audible platforms to sort of organize on a global scale as opposed to just, you know, herding cats in a, in a cityscape, <laughs> uh, you know, where artists are traditionally very hard to organize, of course. Can I? So, hey, yeah, your reputation ahead. precedes you. I'm a fan. Uh, we've connected a few a, a few times in, through this NFT space, and I really love it. But your work. And impact kind of predates NFTs. So if you if you'd share with us kind of your version, and I always am super fascinated by how folks describe them themselves. Because if I only give you a minute, it's interesting to me what you choose to focus on. So don't feel you know, you know whatever you want to share, please do. And then I want to um, probably spend some time having a conversation and follow up to that sixty second intro. And um, talk about, yeah, that royalty debate, probably get back to that because that was the promise that got a lot of talent into this space. And like so many other cycles, talent was in one way or another exploited to bring attention to this space. And now all of a sudden they're royalties. I see Spotty out there and some others. Royalties aren't um, as given as they um, once were. So give a little intro. We, we've, I DM'd a lot of my friends to jump in because I was very um, excited to speak with you. So give, give an intro if you would. Yeah, and please retweet the room so we can get some more folks in because this is going to be a great conversation. I'm so excited to have you on, Joe. Let's do this. Yeah, thanks, Carlo. And um, yeah, like, you know, I you know, spent my whole childhood growing up painting in oils and stuff and, and was, you know, heavily influenced by Bob Ross in the seventies. But, you know, when I got out of my comfort zone and I was traveling and everything, I made observations. I was very concerned about environmental issues and was fighting a road down in Southern California, the San Joaquin Hills toll road. And, you know, it, I'd been studying and traveling to different places and saw that this sort of mandala-like shape existed in all cultures around the globe. So in order to sort of reach and speak to people without knowing their specific, you know, language, I could speak to them through symbolic languages and reach a, a global audience in that sense and, and bring my ideas forth about environmentalism at first, but also like, you know, observe, observing the sort of divisions that existed in our society. And this is in the early 90s, where you I traveled all across America, and you see a railroad track, uh, and, and the poor people live on the other side of that track.
I think I, I think I accidentally muted you because I don't know what I'm doing as a host. I tried <laughs> to give a, yeah, a yeah. heart. Okay. They put so, the heart button over the mute everyone button, so right. I apologize. No worries. I missed. Um, so, yeah, so I saw these, uh, you know, environmental issues and wanted to address that, so I started using found flowers and stuff like that. But also after lots of travel around the world, as well as in this country, saw this division and wanted to address that. So I started using these sort of circular organic forms and putting basically circles and decentralization in a way, uh, you know, imagining that each color, every different thing was an individual that kind of focused around a larger vision. Um, so, it, uh, and then putting these organic forms inside the urban grid, that is, you know, where we've cut up everything into divisive little pockets and separated people from nature, separated people from social classes, and and, and ultimately a, a big income divide. And so the promise of decentralization and, and all that, and unbanking the unbanked and, and giving people opportunities really means a lot to me. So, um, and it, it was also, you know, making things ephemeral because I was it was like, the consumer culture is extracting resources at such a rate around the globe. And as other, uh, you know, countries come online with, you know, more and more products and, and things that are, I don't know, essentially just stuff to sell. We need to kind of think globally and, and figure out before we burn the hole in the planet. <laughs> you know, I don't know. It's, it's, uh, I know it's a, it can be controversial. Uh, you know, topic, but um, it's something I believe in, and uh, we need to kind of find a way to cooperate and and uh, find balance. And where people aren't starving around the world, people aren't enslaved around the world, people can uh, live a life that's, you know, they feel a bit of comfort and uh, security in their own lives. And so I'm putting circles inside squares for. 30 years. I love that. Talk to me, give me, share, tell me the story about opposing the road. What specifically do you do? What steps do you take to oppose a toll road in California? Well, there ago? was, there was a lot of different activist groups, including earth first and stuff, but my main focus was to put, you know, natural materials uh, in front of people and draw attention to the topic at hand. Uh, at the time, the San Joaquin Hills toll road was, being built uh, largely uh, with funding by Philip Morris, another big Irvine company, and other big, you know, uh, groups with money, and uh, they were cutting a path through the last green space in Orange County. And you know, it's like where are the oranges grown? You're naming it for oranges, wow. but it, you know, and wow. uh, it's sort of like you know, it disrupts you know, that last green space. So we cut that in half, then we cut it in half again, and we put it in a strip mall and exit ramps and all this, then, you know, where's nature? And so it's become, you know, LA in particular has that thing where at the time, 10,000 tons of pollution was being produced uh, just off the solids of the tires uh, that would fly off the tires while people drove around. And, you know, it's like they historically eliminated the rail systems and stuff like that. And there's been a lot of awareness since to bring it back. 
and bring those rails back and provide public transportation, but it all becomes this thing where we've lobbied and, you know, set the standard and Robert Moses built all these highways and everybody modeled it all over the country uh, on the same thing to get around. So we're, you know, we've got, you know, and then we fight wars for oil and other things. So it's just kind of this self-perpetuating thing about who can get the most money the fastest and, and uh, accumulate the most wealth, but it leaves a lot of people in the dust. And I just think it's unfair. You okay, Janko? I don't know. I kept getting. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so I just started playing with different uh, floral uh, patterns as well as then moving to the Bay Area and using the e-waste that was piling up all around the Bay Area during uh, the first dot-com boom and industrial waste and started creating narrative characters out of these florals and tech and other stuff and uh, continued. I've made mushroom clouds out of wheatgrass that sort of represent the role reversal of a nuclear explosion uh, on a, you know, Blade Runner post-apocalyptic landscape. I, you know, played around with very highly politically charged things and uh, eventually got into sand and painting with sand uh, uh, when I couldn't really bring all that material to New York with me and uh, really enjoyed the color and pattern. And so my work continues to be political in a sense, but it's also um, bringing it out to people and engaging people one-on-one in conversation, uh, creating an experience of art that's a concept and exchange of ideas as opposed to a physical object. And so what interests me about blockchain is that I can take those documentary photographs and actually you know, create a sustainable income from it where it's not going to, you know, continue. Uh, like, it, it, you know, it's a grind. I, it, my knees get hard, get beat up when I do that. And I'm not getting any younger. So it's also, you know, I can slow down and not have to grind and, and go through these physical things as intensely as I was able to do in, in a very... Um, idealistic youth you know uh so it's it's like continuing the ideas but pivoting and and adjusting and and recognizing the technology is like something that can really pull us forward um i've always had that interest in technology that's that was my next question i guess you answered it how do you stay curious how do you first of all how do you stay so positive i know you're a positive person um given the weight of all the things you care about and know about and think about and talk about. And how do you find time as an artist who needs to, you know, create, you know, create a life for themselves, create a business for themselves, also stay curious and have time to learn about new technologies as they, as they grow. So first, how do you stay so positive? Um, you know, it's, I, I just believe in people and I, I believe in, in the possibilities and, and, and the technology, you know, I first, you know, I was in the Bay area in the nineties and saw how, you know, simple things could change people's lives. And, and, you know, I just think forward 
you know, seven generations of what could happen if, if with my actions today, what could happen seven generations in the future. Um, and it's from interest in studying Native American mythologies and, and mythologies around the world that like how we plant seeds now can affect the future. So I'm, I'm very confident in my process and what I'm doing and how I can leave these images behind, even if I don't see success or drastic change in my own lifetime, I believe that it's possible that somebody three generations down the line will go, wow, and then pick up the seed and do it themselves, you know? Love that long game, Joe. Yeah, well, and and that's also, you know, association with the, the Long Now Foundation in the Bay Area, which is all about long-term thinking. And I just see there's so much short-term uh, interest that people want me, 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 and they want money now. And uh, ultimately, they're not leaving much behind for their kids and that sort of thinking. Joe, if I could jump in, one of the things that I really found fascinating about your work is that ephemeral nature of it. Um, you talk about how grueling it is on your knees, but it's probably just as grueling on your hands because you're literally squeezing out through your fingers that sand to create these pieces. And what I love about it is the impermanent nature of it because, you know, it, it takes me back, of course, to the, to the Buddhist mandala. And I, I've always been fascinated with Buddhism, not as a religion, but as an operating system and the notion of impermanence. And your work captures that beautifully. And I love how you've taken the work, made it something ephemeral and impermanent, but then you also package the sand and release those as a separate commemorative piece. I'd love for you to talk about how that came to you and what that means to you in your art. Well, it like first off, I'm I'm not a Buddhist, but I but I recognize the beauty in it, and uh, I'm not practicing. I'm, I'm agnostic or even um, maybe like even atheist in a lot of ways. But I recognize the power of these organizations of different practices, and uh, you know Native American practice, and the, you see the Celtic knots and Islamic practices where the patterning is all all very symbolic and a lot of and a lot of that knowledge is being lost because we you know we we get the night next shiny object uh, marketed to us but um you know it's uh you know the practice of of pouring the sand is something that i kind of developed it's different than the buddhist use the chalk pour tools to sort of exactly yeah that's yeah. that was that was a fascinating because they actually have a tool for it but you take it one step further, you're literally pouring it out of your hands. Well, I, I grew up, you know, and went to art school and very inspired through, you know, like Jackson Pollock was inspired by the sand, Native American sand painting. And so he used tools in a different way with brushes and paint. But I, you know, found that my hands were the easiest way to manipulate a line. And I, I compare it to like, you know, I've always also had an affinity to street art and graffiti. And so it's like a aerosol can where if you get up close to a, a wall and, and move quickly, you can make a very thin, you know, correct line. If you move back, it fades out and, and you get more of a, a wash of paint. So it's the same thing. It's only gravity fed, 
it's not propelled by aerosol. So that's the toxic thing that I wanted to avoid uh, contributing to. And so when I found colored sand, it was like a natural thing that to move from, you know, picking flowers and, and cutting up garbage of tech and stuff and arranging them and using these sort of uh, connections that we have to those physical objects to then translate it into painting and explore painting on a whole other level of doing it live. And then, you know, just the fact that it could blow away at any instant and you're doing it out in the middle of New York city where people are like walking by on their phones and walking across it. And the New Yorkers feel like, Hey, what, you know, and they start screaming at the person, you know, in my defense and, and, you know, uh, there's all kinds of things that happen when you put something colorful and big out in the middle of a city and people aren't expecting it and people come up and they've burst into tears and they've like kind of sat there for hours for, you know, a couple of days a week. And then you notice, and they come back and they're, and they're like one day have the courage to tell you that they actually say you saved their life because you gave them hope. And it's like floors you, you know, you're like, uh, I'm getting choked up just talking about that right now because it's it's such an amazing thing to like think that your art affected someone in that way. Are those experiences that you've had yourself where art has affected you um, in a in a major way? And would you share? Uh, yeah, you know, it's it's like just you know most recently sitting in the the lobby of MoMA with a Rafik Anadol piece and just spending a good half hour, 45 minutes. And just, it's this like visual meditation that I really enjoyed. But, you know, I used to, you know, I went to the art Institute of Chicago and, and we had free pass to go into the museum at any time. So I would sit in front of Cezanne and I would sit in front of the golden wall by Hans Hoffman and learn about space and color and, and, excavation by the Kooning. So I was really focused on a lot of abstract expressionist at the time, uh, but also just learning how to transform the two-dimensional surface with paint and learned a lot of color, uh, about color from a very uh, dear woman named uh, Betsy Ruprecht who grew up in the studio of Hans Hoffman where her parents had taken classes from him. And so she was an instructor there that that taught me all about color and space and how to how to bring that that two dimensional surface to life. That's amazing. Um, I'm going to ask you to tell me one more story from your early education days. Pass it off to Carlo and then invite. We have some really we have a lot of people that I admire in the audience today. So please feel free to join. We have some time if you wanted to, to, to ask a question or say hi to Joe. Um, we have some, t uh, the talent to um, profile pick uh, ratio in here is pretty strong. So I'd encourage anyone to jump in. I love listening to all of you. Um, give me one more story. You said where you studied art, like what was that like? What did you think at the time you wanted to do with your life? Um, what, what did you see art as? Was it a means? Was it an, an end when you were young studying with these great teachers you mentioned? Yeah. And, and that's the thing is like when you're young, you don't really know. You don't have a the inner voice of what you really want or what what you want to paint. So you learn the fundamentals of, 
of the medium and and you know oh here's a still life here's a nude you know that was the the standard practice in in art school in those days and uh you know it's like sometimes you're just not really attracted to that or whatever or you don't and and i think you know so many young artists come and they and they will make you know there's nothing wrong with making derivatives of of another artist but it's never your own until you break that mold and i think the most important thing is to find out like who you are as a person and do some really deep thinking as into what you want to say as an artist and in that time after college i traveled around and and went to you know six or eight different countries in 47 states and did a lot of reading did a lot of meditation and kind of just exploring and meeting you know having a sort of rhythm of if I, I met glances with a person twice i'd introduce myself and start a conversation and uh put down the camera and said i'm going to experience the sunset and not take pictures of it and uh you know really kind of reevaluate who i was and you know in that process discovered a voice that you know uh, within myself and uh, that's going to be unique to anybody as an artist so when you find that voice then you can take the the voice with orchestrated with the medium that you choose and develop the techniques around that medium and then and then when you finally get it all in sync and it's like that resonates then that message is stronger and powerful and it's a distinctive style that's purely your own. And uh, I look at the exploration of, you know, NFTs as yet another medium to explore that is an extension in my toolkit. So it's like, how can I take sand painting and ephemeral art and put it on chain in a very unique way that no one else, you know, it's like it creates a whole other art in itself. So that's, you know, I kind of jumped into the space two years ago and explored and minted a few things. And then it became obvious that I really needed to learn more about the tech before I could really say anything with this medium. And so now it's like I'm getting kind of started uh, to explore more and more stuff and minted a few things to kind of bridge that gap and uh, bring my audience in. Thank you. Thanks. I got to let Carlo have some time, but you're yeah. always welcome back. And I'll jump in and probably interrupt once or twice in the next half hour. But thanks, Joe. Thanks, thanks Janko. Joe, I want to get in your head a little bit. Um, you know, the creative process. I want to know how much of your work is predetermined. I know that your color palette is largely predetermined, but when you show up and you do a piece in public, how much of it is predetermined and how much of it is spontaneous based upon the environment, the interaction with people? Like what really drives that creative process? Is it predetermined or is it more in the moment and in the flow? It's 100% improvised. And the only colors that may get chosen, uh, I may, you know, choose like 15 to 20 colors to put in my, you know, box to wheel out to the park. But it's really spontaneous. I may, you know, only use 12 of them or, or 15 or, you know, and 
sense and sometimes just limit it. And sometimes there's just an idea that pops in my head when I'm getting ready to start, but really the whole flow of the painting is completely improvised start to finished. And, uh, you know, it may be influenced by, uh, you know, the music, the other people playing music in the park or even comments like, uh, you know, a uh, little kid would come up and say, oh, that looks like feathers. And then I'd like start replicating some kind of feathers. So it's, it's, a, it's sort of like an improv sort of call and response to the audience sometimes. Other times I, you know, get an idea halfway through that I want to execute on. Um, at one point, Hurricane Sandy was on its way to New York City. So I, I purposely made a hurricane. And that was more predetermined, of course. But, but the actual sort of strokes and how I attacked it were all spontaneously just created right out of my, you know, from head to hand. So it's all just sort of, you know, and, it, you know, it, it means like you're going to fail. You, sometimes you're not going to hit it. You know, and uh, other times you do. You know, you can't expect every painting to be a masterpiece. So, um, and I, you know, and well, another influence of Betsy Ruprecht was that like we did drawings on uh, with vine charcoal on a single piece of paper for a semester. And so it was like drawing after drawing, you know, 15 seconds, 30 seconds, a minute, five minutes, 10 minutes, and wipe them out after each one. So it's just, a matter of like not having that precious relationship with what you've created, but learn, know that you're, you've got to develop the skills and, and, uh, you know, do it all, every day and, and, uh, pursue art in a way that is, uh, it's about ideas. Before I pass it to Justin, that prompts me to ask you another question. Because it is essentially jazz and improvisational in that sense, the way you create, I would love if you could talk about two examples. One, the most endearing thing that's ever happened during your process in making this art live and on the spot. And two, the most shocking thing that's ever happened. Huh. Like, I think one of the most endearing things was, is, you know, a story I described earlier where, uh, uh, and it's happened more than once, actually. But a woman came up after six months of hanging out with me at Union Square. Um, did I give her hope, and I saved her life. And uh, but she'd come and eat her lunch and sit down next to me, never engaged in conversation, just sit there. And you, you know, you notice them, and you just keep on working. Some people want to ask questions, others don't. Another uh, elderly artist, um, I can't recall his name at the time, but he was an African American artist. Uh, in his 80s, and uh, uh, some other, uh, and he just stopped and came up to me, and he was just blown away by the work, and 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 burst into tears right in front of me, and it was just, you know, it floors you. It's it's amazing, and uh, you know, other, uh, you know, other people. Uh, There's a, a French. Uh, man named Pierre, he would come out with his pipe and he was a physicist. And we discussed these in-depth sort of conversations about how snowflakes were formed because that's what he studied. And he was like a, you know, emeritus professor at NYU. Uh, so he was in the neighborhood and he would always come out and, 
discuss that sort of thing. And then sometimes you'd catch uh, visiting scholars um, that would be in from Dubai or somewhere else attending a conference and, and uh, or psychologists, you know, just an incredible breadth of, of people from, you know, homeless to, you know, the, the like academics and, and just, you know, all everything in between. Um, you know, people, uh, you know, teenagers, uh, whatever, and they, they all have different takes and, and different things they, they read into it. And uh, it's always just a pleasure having the conversations um, that happen around a live piece of art. I love it. I love it. That's beautiful. Thank you. Justin, welcome to LexLine. Uh, if you've got a question for Sam, man, we'd love to hear it. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, no, I um, actually I just jumped up here. Cause I have to go in a minute, but um, I just want to say a few words. I, I wanted to just come up to express seriously, like just so much appreciation for, for Joe because he's just been so steady and consistent and deliberate, like as an artist and, and also like early adopter of this NFT technology. And, and, you know, I don't know, I feel like his kind of responsible personality and movements like through the space can often get lost amongst like the frenetic character of web three. And so, I think it's just, I don't know, I, he's always been so, so steady and consistent and just being, you know, a good person and a great artist. And, and I, I don't know, I, I just wanted to express that. And, and all, with that, I wanted to give like appreciation to you guys like Carlo and Ray, because for showcasing Joe, you know, especially, you know, for those who may not be the loudest in the space, but actually the more soft spoken, who, by the way, often are probably the most good actors in the space that are the most soft spoken ones you know, should be amplified through the voices of others. And I think we all need to, you know, um, try to do that. And, and I think you're doing that really well. And um, anyways, Joe, um, yeah, you know, I love your work. And, and uh, I just want to say thank you for being you because we need more people like you, not only to be successful, but to show that your, your path and your, is, is, and your, and your, the way you move is, is a way you can be successful. Cause that's, that's how, you know, the ecosystem will, be healthier and healthier. So that's, that's just it. I really appreciate that, Justin. It means a lot. And, uh, you know, it's, there's, there's a lot of artists, you know, that, that have a real true sense of who they are in the space and, and, uh, you don't always see them on the stage. So I, I really do appreciate the opportunity, uh, Ray and Carlo and, uh, hope we can find, you know, there, there used to be a lot more discussions about art and, uh, that's, that's, it's moved into all kinds of other things on Twitter spaces. So uh, it, it'd be great to find uh, more of a interesting group of people to, to explore topics of art and how blockchain is integrated into it and, and uh, extended as a medium and a tool, you know? So um, I'm, I'm hoping to attract some of those people so that we can talk more about it. Well, you know, Joe, that brings up a great point because, yes, we do have a lot of really complex legal issues that we tackle on this show, but we also like to bring in artists because I think there's a symbiotic relationship in this space because without the artists and the creators, we wouldn't really have any reason to be here. And I think that gets overlooked a lot of times in the making of the sausage, so to speak. So that's one of the reasons why it's important to Jenko and I that we try to bring up various artists. You know, we've had Guido on and we've had other great creators in this space, Sarah script, spotty, that very, spotty as well. Yes. Shout out to spotty. Um, spotty. 
And, you know, it, it begs a question that I think we should talk about because at this current moment in the space, there is a lot of debate going on about the disappearance of royalties and what this does to the reason that we, we jumped on this medium to begin with. We were, for the most part, attracted to blockchain technology and NFTs as a vehicle to fill a gap. And you talked about it, that the second seller doctrine and so forth, to fill that gap where artists were losing the opportunity to get the benefit of royalties on their work. And this empowered artists. And now we're sort of seeing it slip away. So I would love to get your thoughts as, as someone who I think is a deep thinker in the space. I see you in a lot of spaces and you listen and you learn intently and you talk when appropriate. And I'd love to see what your thoughts are on the evolution of this. Where do you see this going for artists now? Well, I, I think, you know, we've, we've had two worlds colliding in a lot of ways. You know, we've got the financial interest and, you know, trader uh, sort of mentality and, and artists and people that want to get the royalties that have not historically had those royalties and a lot of digitally native artists that have never had access to the traditional art world in, in, in the way that NFTs give them uh, always kind of working on uh, a larger project collaboratively, collaboratively with, with a larger company like Pixar or whatever. And uh, it, now they can kind of, you know, show their their work that hasn't been seen because it, it's it's a lot of work to get, you know, social media presence and and all that. And if you're working, you know, for a larger company, forty hours a week, it's it's very difficult to to pay attention to get on Spaces or Instagram or whatever. And and uh, those those companies have traditionally kind of just taken your content and and used it for their own gain anyway. So. Um, it, it kind of just becomes a, a trap in a lot of ways. But um, I think, you know, the sort of standard that was set in the early days was like artists get a 10% royalty. But the problem with that is like um, if people are selling the artwork and the artist is going on a favor, uh, then they sell at a loss and then they've got to pay a royalty on it. Uh or, you know, it's, it's like uh, with the artist resale royalties contract, the written one that I've used, it's a 15% royalty on the added value of the, of the sale. So if you were to, you know, you, whenever you sell it, you're not losing money, but you have to pay a royalty to, on the gains that were made if, if it's sold at a profit or a, a, a larger sum. Um, Whereas if, you know, I've heard, you know, traders say, well, if I sell, if I buy it at one ETH and I sell for 1.1 and I pay a 10% royalty and two and a half percent to open C, then I've lost money. And it's like, yeah, I understand that, that point of view, but it's finding, you know, ways that we can actually use a token standard or something new or, uh, to uh, to trade and and you know that do to transact and and have everybody sort of understand that you know these fees are necessary the royalties are necessary but yet uh, losing money is another thing and and how to make that work and people like run around the system and and not pay the royalty not pay the fee 
is another whole thing that is beyond my technical expertise, but um, maybe, you know, we'll figure it out someday. You know, that's an interesting approach you're taking to it. Um, and I want to give it back to Jenko in a second, because I think he, he has something to add to this, but it, this sliding scale, is it, is it like a sliding scale when you're talking about this 15% or is it, is it triggered on, on just that, that demarcation of, are you, are you, are you now getting a profit on the sale? Well, it's, it's like, uh, yeah, it's, it's 15% of the added value. So if, you know, it, like the, the famous story is Robert Rauschenberg sold a piece for like $950 in 1958. His collector sold it for 85,000 in 1971. And he's like, I've been working my ass off for all this time. And you're the one making all the money. Sounds like and, the summer of 21. Yeah. <laughs> and people, you know, he ended up punching the guy and it, I think it was caught on film even. <laughs> so, uh, because there was a documentary about the collector at the time. So, uh, you know, it's, uh, it, you know, it's like, and this is a historic issue with, and, you know, like in physical art world, um, where things are traded much slower, those types of things are in written contracts. Now we're, you know, fast forward and we're like sweeping floors of 50 tokens and, uh, and, and then flipping them the next day to get uh, a blur drop or whatever. Or, or just, you know, you make a micro amount on it. And then, but the, it disincentivizes those floors being picked up if, if you got to pay a royalty on it. So a lot of really bad art gets swept and traded and da, 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 and the rest kind of goes to the wayside. And, and uh, it, it's, uh, you know, it's just, it's frustrating to say the least. Um, we really need to, you know, find some sort of, way to uh, standardize the process and in you know the larger pfp projects wouldn't be nearly as successful if their royalties weren't being gained uh to be able to you know benefit the holders and stuff and you know full disclosure most people know that i i acquired some bored apes back in the day and uh, it's changed my life but i really you know i stopped you know branding myself or wearing a pft because i'm an artist at heart and and i'm i'm my own brand and those brands can do what they want to do and i'll if i want to utilize the ip i'll go on a different account to do so but this account is for my artwork and my own brand so um it's uh it's been a standard and uh you know it I, I, there's nothing against traders. There's nothing against people making money. It's just a matter of like, how do we find that middle where, uh, it serves the, all of us in the larger sense. Um, you know, uh, perhaps there's a lower platform fee or a lower, uh, percentage sort of standard for a larger PFP project versus an individual artist. Um, and I think, uh, there's a lot of middle ground to be found in that added value, sort of, you know, not losing more money when you're selling at a loss. Those are good points. I, I think we get there. I don't know if I want to use the last few minutes talking uh, market talk, but but I do, I, I do want to get your thoughts on a few issues. I think we get to a point where the market is, let me, let me ask it this way. Regardless of, of the daily volume and trades, et cetera, if an artist who's making their career as 
cultivating their community in real life and has never heard of NFTs, how would they approach it? How would you coach them to approaching this? Because is there a way to stay above the fray of the daily trading? Are we kind of in it because we're in it? Um, can an artist just pick and choose, like you said, a toolbox and then bring it to their ear in real life community and, and use it as a tool? What would you, how would you approach it? Well, I think it, it's better uh, categorization on these platforms uh, and tools to, to develop that. So you can go to one of our artists section on OpenSea or whatever. And, and if it's, um, you know, or, or, you know, and, and really like drilling down into, you know, different types of art and having, uh, you know, a, a banner uh, for each so that, you know, it's not um, just all about like what's trading hot today on the front page. Um, you know, like have more curated platforms, well, not curated platforms, but uh, I don't want to gatekeep, but it's a uh, discoverability is an issue. Discoverability. That's the word I'm looking for. Exactly. Okay. And that's so, so more, you know, we have this AI, we have great technology, a user interface that really allows the person to find their taste would help. But do you see NFTs as a tool for community building if your community is not in, into NFTs? Um, yeah, and I, I think options. How? Uh, it, it's, uh, it, it's, it's definitely a challenge that I'm facing because I've got, okay. you know, a historic audience that is like, what's an NFT, you know, um, and why do I want to buy it? Um, you know, um, and, you know, there's, you're going to have collectors that are like simply going to buy your work and hold it forever and because they love it. Um, but, um, you know, when you uh, describe the idea of provenance that's given and uh, how, you know, you can trace that through history and, uh, you know, like be able to identify the artwork or if if the person passes on and it's like a relative comes in they can identify the work and say oh this is by this artist and it doesn't end up being a van gogh at a garage sale you know <laughs> and uh you know those types of things um but i also think you know we've got to make the tools for uh for collectors to come into this to the ecosystem in a seamless way that uh, most likely doesn't even involve them knowing it's an NFT. And I think it's, uh, I think NFT is. Okay. That was my fault this time. I'm not sure. How... <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, yeah. Joe. Yeah. Yeah. So it, NFT is kind of a problematic term in that like, you know, people don't know, identify with it. It's a technology, not an art form. Um, but I think it can be utilized to make art. Um, and really, you know, it's, it's like uh, we've got to soften the edges and make it more seamless for people to interact with things and, and not worry about their wallet being drained and, and tr more treat it like a credit card on Amazon as opposed to uh, this complex system of like, uh, you know, multiple signing uh, things and and oh yeah and then all these red flag warnings from people saying you know don't click links and this and that it's like there's got to be some protection things put in so your average user doesn't have this happen to them 
you know, um, we see even, you know, some of the, the law, like people in the space that are uh, considered, you know, OGs or whatever, getting wallets drained. So it's like, you know, if they're getting it ha happen it to them, then, you know, you know, like uh, Barbara from uh, Kansas is certainly going to click a link when she hears about some way to win money. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a task that we need to uh, get up to speed with the developers in the space and, and put these protections in. I think token proof is like a excellent way to attend an event. Uh, so it's a low risk kind of thing to connect your wallet to and, and then just carry your phone and show this QR code, you know, those types of rewards programs, ticket entries, all that sort of stuff. Uh, but make it just as safe around, uh, you know, uh, a, a sort of filtered barrier between your assets and the rest of the world, you know? So, uh, you know, the, uh, sort of delegate your, a certain wallet address to interact that has nothing in it, but can read what other things are in your, uh, your ledger, you know, so you don't ever have to connect your ledger to anything. Yeah, that becomes a complicated thing in the space because I know we've seen the open edition be a new, a new sort of pivot that, that artists have taken to try to uh, continue to engage with communities and, you know, the burning of the open edition for a new edition is giving people an incentive to, 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 do, to do these blockchain transactions. But unfortunately, if you're holding a grail for an artist and you need to use that as a gate in order to mint something else, it always does create that dilemma of you don't want to expose your, your vaulted grail in order to get an opportunity to mint something in an addition. So that's definitely a pain point in the space that needs to be uh, dealt with. Um, a question that I had for you was with respect to this uh, categorizing of art. I saw that Sarah's script was able to finally get OpenSea to recognize calligraphy. Have you made any overtures to these platforms to try to to try to recognize your unique form of art? Uh, I have not. Um, it, it's just, uh, you know, I've just recently started minting with Manifold and, uh, you know, just encountering this problem in the past few weeks. Uh, I kind of, you know, hurried to, to create some smart contracts uh, in order because the, the royalty thing was happening before New Year's or something. And then all of a sudden, here we are a month later and it's uh, being eliminated. So uh, there's this, uh, you know, there there's that friction and discoverability issues and stuff. And, and I'm hoping platforms address it and uh, able to just type in your own tags so that things can get discovered. But I think standardized tags that cover a breadth of different types of art and uh, can define and certain if if it's a PFP, it's got to be defined as a PFP in certain ways. You know, you can't define a PFP as as original. Uh, well, it's it's original art, but it's like it's not a one of one art, right? So it's like certain like standards have to be kept across the platform. You can't multiple categorize your art just to spam yourself across everything uh, at the same time. Yeah, you would think an easy fix to the problem would be if these platforms were more like a search engine where you could, and, and I, I like the idea of key terms, 
and having a, a digest of different types of art. But if you could even search within something like OpenSea for sand art, and, and that would certainly simplify the process because it seems like all you can really search for right now are names of projects, and that's limiting. Yeah, I mean, who's going to search Joe Mangrum unless they've encountered me personally? It's it's not going to happen. So if I'm categorized as painting, sand painting, um, sand, you know, medium, by medium, oil, you know, acrylic, uh, fiber, all those types of things, or installation art, you know, I would fall into a couple different categories uh, with things that I do. But, um, you know, there's no auto parts category. There's no, uh, you know, microchip category. And those are all materials I've used too. So it's like, you know, um, conceptual art, whatever types of, you know, framework we can create. I'm just kind of rambling, but, um, you know, it, it, it's a, it, I think it's important to be able to drill into uh, different discoverability uh ways to discover artists and, and find what they're doing. Well, Joe, this, this has been a delightful conversation and have really enjoyed getting to know you, getting to know your process and getting to know your thoughts on the larger marketplace and what we can do to try to improve it. Um, I'm, I'm delighted that you were able to take the time to do this and thank you, Jenko, for getting uh, Joe to come in and join us today. Um, Thank you to everyone who joined us. Jenko, I want to pass it to you to, to close it out and some final remarks for Joe before, he, before we end it for today. No, you're just a, such an insightful guy, man, and it's really cool to all, every time I get to speak to you, I really value the time. So thanks a lot. Are there any books you'd recommend? Are there any people that I should know because you've given me some names I've already scrapped down. Like, like wh where should I be looking? For a particular artist? <laughs> oh, Books, artists, leaders who are talking about the issues that you mentioned before. Somebody that you know that I probably don't that I should be reading. Oh, wow. Banco's uh... <laughs> uh... the rare lawyer that has time to do deep thinking. Yeah. Man. Uh, just... Like I, I'm kind of stuck on a, a book recommendation at the moment. Um, Hit me with an artist that 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 you've seen recently that you've discovered. Uh, you know, it's uh, there's so many. It like become like that's a, a my biggest problem is is remembering these like all these things i connect to the imagery and and uh, uh more so than the name a lot of times because it becomes you know you're in spaces every day and and it, like that's I, fair I, yeah you know, leave me with like... a concept that i want that i can extract <laughs> from you <laughs> no that's all right i just want to show my Joe, give something. skills to carl yeah, yeah. that's um, all right um just, uh, i really appreciate all the wisdom you've shared already i just wanted to to squeeze every every bit out but well, it's really cool and we'll run into each other again yeah i'm, I'm saying like you know i i say like uh explore artists that you know uh 
you know, one of my my favorite artists, or one of them is Fred Tomaselli, and he hasn't done any NFTs. There's like I, I, I suggest going to Chelsea and to the Lower East Side galleries if you're in New York or wherever the galleries are in anybody's city, and find the stuff on the walls because the the physical stuff is you know it's different than an NFT. It's it's you know it has a presence. It has a smell. It has a texture. It has all kinds of things you a basquiat is you know six by eight feet on the wall and it's got all this texture of the paint and and different mediums that are mixed on the canvas you you can see the cigarette butts embedded in a pollock you know and it tells you a story that's much deeper than looking at a screen in a lot of ways um and i appreciate those sorts of things about physical art and i make those large canvases that are textured um and you know, you can only get a screen so big um, before it becomes twenty, thirty thousand dollars for the screen uh, to display. So uh, art at a scale, you know, that's what like the point I made earlier was like, you know, um, the orchestration of the scale of the piece, this, the uh, the the medium, the message, all connect to the artist. And I encourage everybody to dig into the backgrounds of artists. And see what they've done in the past. Are they all over the road with like trying to copy all kinds of different things, or they have a real clear vision of who they are, and, and are they presenting ideas in an experimental way that like may um, have a thread that runs through their entire career? You know, um, can you recognize that artist from any other artist? Those are the artists that are going to be la long-lasting things to collect um and you know uh every you know it's like uh there there are artists that have mastered uh different ways of of media to, as well so it's it's uh you know choose your own adventure buy what you love uh but check it out and and uh don't fomo in just because of the latest trend like Buy selectively, build a collection because the collection is reflection of the collector. And uh, you know, it's a crazy world out there. It's <laughs> crazy. That's what I wanted to get to. It's a crazy world out there. Well, we want to oh. respect your time, Joe. But thanks, man. Uh, we do have Moon Girl that I brought up on a buzzer beater. So I'm going to give you the last question for Joe Moon Girl. And uh, and remember, folks, we do rebroadcast this. So if you missed any of it, it will be available on iTunes and Spotify. And if you came up to speak, you know we record this. So we will be clipping this up and putting out some great content. So keep an eye out for that as well. But welcome, Moon Girl. What's your question for Joe? Hey, Carlo. Thanks for having me up. Ray, it's Kristen from Pattern Integrity. <laughs> we know each other. Yo, Kristen, what's up? How are you doing? I didn't um, recognize this account, but go ahead. <laughs> Buzzer yeah, beater, right. as Carlo says. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, my nickname, I guess, <laughs> these days. Um, hey, Sandman, I just wanted to uh, to throw this out there. Also, um, if this has been covered, my apologies, I, I came in a little late. Um, but I just wanted to throw this out there. Uh, you know, the 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 power of um of video is like is is amazing, I think, especially in this space. Um, you know, recording and, and uh editing your process and um you know, the, the ability for an audience to, to not fall, not just fall in love with the art, but the artist, I think, is just kind of critical these days. And I guess I just wanted to, 
you know, maybe it's less of a question and more of a conversation about, um, you know, creating content. Uh, even what Carla was saying just a second ago, we're going to be, you know, using parts of this recorded call to, you know, slice and dice and and put some things out there, just little nibbles for people, at, you know, while they're scrolling through, uh, you know, and just your art seems really interesting. And I bet the process is just as interesting, if not more. So I guess my question for you would be, um, have you thought about recording your process and even doing a little self-interview um, and posting that? Um, I, when I was working and doing my, the majority of my sand paintings in New York, I always documented it from many different ways, but eventually got a hold of a GoPro and taking time lapses. So I've did time lapses for maybe, uh, you know, the last, you know, six or eight years or more of every piece. I also collect, uh, artifact, uh, like a baggie of sand from every piece so that I have, uh, uh, the ability to bottle that into five different test tubes, which is an artifact of my work. So it's a physical sort of piece that you can say this sand was created in this location, this time frame. Here's the documentation of it. Here's the time lapse of it. Um, you know, so it's always been in that conceptual way that I've presented it. But honestly, when I was in full, you know, mode, um, I barely had time to, you know, just do the work. Um, I would, I was doing four to five paintings a week. I would leave my apartment at, you know, 10, 10 30 in the morning, uh, get all my stuff together, get out to the park by 11 30, 12, work straight eight hours, uh, with only maybe water. Uh, I wouldn't eat or I'd pretty much fast all day, finish the painting, around eight o'clock, uh, the sun's still up. I would hang out at Washington Square till midnight, go home, uh, leave the park at midnight, take my stuff back to storage. I'd have a bucket full of, of crumpled dollar bills to unfold uh, dust out of the sand, download the images that I took all day, uh, make some posts in the afternoon of the still images, um, and and charge my batteries, eat a, a big dinner, go to bed, and then do the whole process over the next day. So to, to start slicing a video and be, become a content creator in that same sense, it was, would be a Herculean task uh, that, you know, I, I attempted to post those things through Patreon, but it just became like one of those crazy, you know, I'm way, doing way too much for way too little uh, reward out of that. And, um, and, and not every artist, especially me is very good at social media. <laughs> I, I really appreciate the vocal to be able to voice, you know, in audio chats that have come out with clubhouse and Twitter spaces. And it's really enabled me to get, uh, more, uh, in-depth conversations with people about my work rather than just posting and, and waiting on a comment uh, or something and, and, and constantly having to check and, and glued to a screen to, to like, you know, be uh, to, to foster a relationship with someone. And so it's, it's, uh, you know, it, it's, it's a lot of work to create the content. It's a job within itself is my point. I'll tell you what, as far as half court buzzer beater shots go, that was all net. 
phenomenal question. Do you have a follow-up for that one? I just have a book recommendation because um, you guys were asking about that. Uh, so Rick Rubin just came out with The Creative Act, A Way of Being, and it's, um, it's brilliant. It's absolutely, it's so refreshing and just, just incredible. So I highly recommend. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming up. And thank you to everyone who joined us. Thank you, Joe. Look forward to seeing you as always in the space and really, really enjoyed connecting with you. And I look forward to seeing what you do in the future. So thank you so much for joining us. And thank you to everyone. I hope you have a wonderful weekend. Yeah. Thanks to everyone for dropping in. I appreciate it. And, uh, you know, let's keep it going. Uh, let's uh, make some art and, and build this space. Beautiful way to close. Peace, everyone. Have a wonderful weekend. Enjoy your Friday.